Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, you're in for a treat. Dr. Fern Caslow, known as Dr. K, is my guest. She shatters limitations and transforms high achievers into super achievers. Dr. K, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience 60 to 90 seconds on your very colorful background? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Okay, that's kind of fun. So in terms of the, you know, stats, uh, 35 plus years and over 100,000 hours of doing clinical psychotherapy, business and marketing, branding strategy and mentoring high achievers. Okay, that's that's kind of the headline. What am I really? I'm somebody who hates limitations, who thinks that we all need to be 100% responsible and really whose life is about helping people to create even more than they ever dreamed they could do. Okay, so let's just pick up on 100% responsibility. How can anyone take 100% responsibility for things that are beyond their own control? Okay, so you just made a great distinction, right? No, you can't take 100% responsibility for things beyond your control, but you can take 100% responsibility for your part of what's in control. And one of the things that you see in people who are super achievers is that they do take 100% responsibility. And we're not taught to do that. We're taught to throw blame. We're, because we've been, you know, we've been punished, we've been ridiculed, we've been shamed. We don't want it to be our fault. And yet the cool thing is that if we're responsible, not to take blame, because I want to make a distinction between judgment, judging yourself, and being discerning and taking responsibility. But when you do that, it's really powerful. If you've got like 50% responsibility, you've got like a lot less than 50% power. If you've got 100% responsibility for yourself, not for the other people, not for other things in the world, but for yourself, you're going to have massive impact. I interviewed Steve D. Sims earlier this week (laughs) um, from Bluefish, and he made a really interesting observation, which is that the most successful people he knows, and there are a lot of them, lean into their failures. And the people who are unsuccessful pull back from them. And that, I think, is a really fascinating observation because they see failure as a learning opportunity and they're fascinated by what caused it to go wrong and how to improve. So that's really an interesting distinction. And I love Steve and his book is one of my favorite books. Okay, Uh, Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. Uh, I love that book. Recommend that to like everybody. It's an interesting distinction about leaning into failure or even it's like how we hold failure. So I was doing a podcast the other day and they were asking me to talk about my failures and I had to really think about it. Now, of course, I'm not, you know, I screw up like everybody else does, but I had to really think because I don't think in terms of the failures. I mean, that's the truth. It's like, and I've screwed up big time. No question about that. But it doesn't live in me like that. It lives in me. I have kind of a motto for myself. And that is whenever something happens, whether I caused it because I'm 100% responsible. So whatever my part is in it or whatever's happened, that I want to learn more and make more money, make more difference from the lesson than it cost me. So anytime there's a screw up, wherever it comes from, I really sit down and say, okay, what's the learning? And how can I turn that into getting more out of it than it's cost me in whatever way it's cost me? One of my mentors, Dr. Mark Goulston, who wrote the the fabulous book, which I recommend to everybody, if you're part of the species, you have to read Just Listen. And he 
taught me one powerful maxim, which is let go or be dragged. And the the problem is that people hang on to um, their old past hurts and they reach back into their history every now and again and drag the feeling of diminishment or belittling or a loss and angst and anguish. And then they suffer it all over again. Now, if, if they've had an argument with somebody or it was they were being bullied or whatever, the other person probably doesn't even know you exist. And yet um, they, you're still giving them power over you. And that that's one of the most interesting things that I've seen, that the more successful people tend to be able to move on, let go of the uh, the hurt and just take the lesson with them. Okay, so I'm going to have a little different spin on that. So I want to say a couple of things. First of all, the letting go, I mean, it's huge. It's huge, right? If you hold on, I always say to people, so so-and-so did that to you one time and you've done it to yourself about a hundred million times. So they abused you once, but you continue to abuse yourself over and over and over and over. You keep re-traumatizing yourself, right? Like, you know, what's the deal with that? So you're behaving worse in terms of worse for you. But the other part of that is that when we do that with successful people, and this is one of the things that I've learned. I've been, you know, working with high performers for over 35 years, and I'm now writing a book on high performers. And so there's a tricky part to that. So high performers are amazing. High achievers are amazing at taking the upsets, the difficult things, the traumas, the bad, the quote unquote bad things that have happened. And they tend to either push them down, they compartmentalize them, meaning they put them in a little box, or they use them as fuel. Now, here's the trick. So it gets them to a certain point. But one of the dangers is that if they don't do actually what you said, but most of them don't do it, and that is release the energy of it and integrate the learning, then it comes back to bite them. And the way it comes back to bite them is in one of two ways. Either it limits their ultimate success, success, which is kind of funny because I work with people who are really successful, and yet they're not as successful as they can be, or they are successful, but there's a cost. And there's a cost to their health, there's a cost to their relationships, there's their joy, their sense of self, So it doesn't happen without a cost. So one of the things that is hugely important for high achievers, and it's one of the things I'm on a soapbox about, is the way they deal with trauma, the way they deal with these failures, the upsets. You want to let them go, but you really want to let them go. You don't want to let it look like you're letting it go. And in fact, if anything, one of the things I see in high achievers, and I'm totally like, you know, put me in this box. I've been guilty. And it's something I've worked on over the years, is that we wear it as a badge of honor all the things that we've pushed through and haven't stopped us. Mm-hmm. I had this failure. I had this bankruptcy. I had this, you know, other experience. I had this person who did me wrong. I, you know, all these kind of things. I was sick. I had surgery. I had my house burned, whatever it is, like all kinds of things, right. That people say, I, you know, I, all of them. And I'm not saying these are about me. I'm just saying, particularly, these are things that I hear and I have my own set of them. Well, the deal is that depending on how we live with them, it's going to really have a big effect. So if we kind of say, I push through it all, which is what high achievers tend to do, and that's where it ends, it will come back to bite us. So that's one of the biggest things that needs to happen. These are examples of psychological gameplay and people playing in the drama triangle. In my experience, uh, I've done a lot of work using the, the TA drama and winner's triangle. And 
what I've found is that lots of people will play the victim in order to drag other people into their pity party. Um, and they'll drag them in so that they can then play the persecutor or rescue. Now, the smart money never gets involved in any of that ego-driven gameplay because ego thrives on drama. And what I've found with the more successful of my uh, clients that I've worked with is their ego is healthy and it has its place, but it never gets between them and the outcome. It never gets between them and the relationship. So it's a really great point that you're mentioning. And one of the things that I see is that there's usually a pivot point. So there's a beginning and most entrepreneurs will have had, you know, traumatic experience. They'll have all kinds of things that have happened, especially early in life, but throughout life, it just, you don't go through entrepreneurship or pretty much anything if you're doing something big without having difficult experiences. So they come to a point where they pivot. So before that, they may be driven and there may be ego. And there even may be things, for example, I had one very successful entrepreneur saying to me that their father crumpled up a hundred dollar bill and threw it at him and said, this is, you know, you're going to need this when you fail, right? You're going to need this when you fail. So he was driven by proving his father's wrong. And so many entrepreneurs were driven by things that people said about them. Most of them have felt different. They've had stuff to prove, but they reach a point when they're really successful, where either they make that pivot or they may not be the ones that you see, but something else happens. They get really sick. Their life just isn't thriving. So even if their business is, something goes off. So it's a really important point that isn't such a straight line. And the whole, if I can speak to the victim thing, can I speak to that for a second? Of course. So the victim thing that you mentioned is really interesting because some people really, they, you know, they've just been doing it so long and they're really stuck in it and they want to stay there. And I'll always ask people when they're arguing for something, do you want to stay there? Are you arguing to keep your limitation? Or are you arguing because you want me to help you move past it? Because either way is cool with me, right? I'm not going to spend my time working with them and trying to get them into another space if they're really not ready to do that. No judgment. That's cool. But many people are in that victim role because one reason or another, they learned it was safer. And so those people, when they learn something different, they can go bigger, they can be visible, they can be seen, they can take that 100% responsibility. But most people that get into that victim role either didn't know another way, have wiring because things are passed down in our DNA, right? Or we learn it as a way of protection, not because they're necessarily bad people. And so the goal is for me, find out, do they want to change it or do they want to stay there? If they want to change it, then let's go. Let's work on it. Let's dig in. So often what I see is it becomes habituated and it becomes so familiar. And letting go of that is incredibly difficult. And this is one of the overriding themes of the work that I do is looking for attachment and looking for attachment that is no longer relevant and no longer serves them because far far too often we find ourselves in a rut and my favorite def definition i've ever heard of a rut is a coffin with both ends kicked out <laughs> oh my goodness okay i'm gonna remember that yeah and, that's kind of a rut and the problem is that people as a species we seem to have this uh, in uncanny ability to just keep digging, even when we hit bedrock. 
and we just keep digging away and making our lives harder. And I think far too few people spend time in self-reflection. They spend too little time in trying to understand how they got to where they are and why and what they really want, because they just keep going. And this speaks to another issue, which I know that you'll have opinions on, (laughs) which is the importance of setting unreasonable, enormous goals versus safe ones. Okay, you've just said so many important things there. Okay, so let's start with the first one about habit, right? And why they dig in, dig in, dig in, dig in. We get into what I call trances. People say that people have belief systems, and they do. But to me, it's way, 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 way deeper. People get into trances. And what I say is first we make it up, then we believe it, then we create the world to prove that it's true. And we do that not because we're dumb, not because we're stupid people, not because like we're wired to like self-destruct, but because we don't know how to get out of it and do the things that you mentioned that are so important. We just don't know how to do it, right? So once we can get somebody who can hold the space, who can help us see that, who can help us to move into it, use that stuck place as a gateway if we want to. And want to doesn't mean just like, oh, I want to. It means like, okay, do I have enough in place that now is the time that I'm willing to go through some of those scary places? For some people, it only happens when what's ahead of them looks worse than changing, right? You know, people say, what got you here won't get you there. I say, what got you here now is exactly what's going to hold you back from getting further, but you have that confirmation bias. You have that first, you made it up, then you believed it, then you created the world to prove it's true. And without help, it's very hard to break through. So I always try and bring the lens of therapist in, and I always try and do a twist on things. So instead of looking at people trying to do something negative, I always say, what is the positive thing that they're trying to do in a way that's not productive? So I'll ask people, like, is this really working for you? What are you trying to do? And when we look at what we're trying to do and we do the self-reflection and we do it not just in our mind, but in our body, because a lot of these patterns are so deep. They're in our energy field. They're in our body. They're in the way we think. They're in the way we feel. They are habitual, but so deep and in our earliest patterns of attachment and in our DNA. Okay. Because now they know that trauma is passed through our DNA. So if you really want to do it, you often need help to make that breakthrough. Somebody like you, somebody like me will help them to open to a different possibility, open to a different worldview. The point you made about DNA is really very interesting. Um, I, I always joke and say, I blame Adolf Hitler for my weight because my parents grew up in Malta during the blockade. So they were literally living off rats. They were, you know, the world oh. was a week away from people dying of starvation. <sighs> But there are uh, a group of Indians called Thin Fat Indians. And their parents grew up during the, or uh, had them when they were in the famine. And it triggered a gene, which means that their cholesterol levels are through the roof. Mm -hmm. And they die of heart attacks all the time, despite the fact they're skinny as a beanpole. And I think far too often we forget that as mammals, we're animals. We're social primates as well. And you touched on something earlier that you said, I'm misquoting you, I think, but uh, you're helped by someone who can help keep the space open for you. 
And I think that's another really important factor that successful people, whilst they may have vision and drive, they absolutely cannot be successful on their own. So I'd love to explore how super successful people engage in productive relationships. You know, it's such a, an interesting thing because people that are less successful, and it's changing now, which I'm really glad about, but people who are less successful tend to be more shy about getting help, right? They don't want to show their vulnerabilities. People that are successful, they've gotten help along the way and they know that they need to continue getting help. And so being able to work with somebody who can see what we can't see. We can only see certain things. We have blind spots. Everybody does. I do. I still like reach out to colleagues, to people that, you know, like when something is is stuck, I'm like, okay, I know there's something I'm not seeing or something I can't move on my own. And one of the great things about being a therapist is if you get really good training, you go through, for me, it was literally decades of self-reflection, of looking at what gets triggered in me by clients, by patients, so that I can own my own stuff and not put it on somebody else. So even when you're really successful, this is really interesting because you're as successful as you're to be woo for a minute, as your energy field, as your frequency allows, you're successful as not just people say, like when The Secret came out, that movie, and everybody talked about law of attraction, and they said, you get what you think. Well, no, you only get partially what you think. You get where you vibrate. You get where your frequency is, which is really a combination of what you think, what you feel, the the sources around you. So that's what you attract. So it's kind of saying, well, I want to be this next thing, but I'm over here. You need somebody who can hold that space, see it, feel it, and know not just how to get there for themselves, but how to move you in your way, not their way. This is one of the big problems with coaches and mentors is that they try and get you to do it their way, instead of really listening deeply and saying, okay, what are they asking for? What do they really want? Maybe even bigger than they can see yet. And how can I help them to get there in their way? And if you've got somebody who's not doing that, get a different mentor, get a different coach. Good advice. I want to pick up on something because I think what the secret really was, was a fabulous bit of marketing. And little more than that. The reality is where you place your attention is what really matters. And that feeds to what you were saying around the energy. Because if your attention is on avoiding the wall in a skid, chances are you're going to hit the wall because that's where your attention is. So you look for the open space. And I think one of the mistakes people make is that they forget that you have to put the work in. I'm a huge fan of uh, the whole concept of do less but better on purpose and mean it. And far too often what people are looking for is the magic dust. They want you to wave a magic wand. In my ideal world, I would pay someone to go to the gym and diet, and then I would lose weight and look buff. (laughs) But it's not that important to me. I have to be honest. It's so low on my priority list. Other people worry about it. But I spent my life in, uh, in fits of laughter and constantly engaging with really interesting people and learning. So I'm happy as a pig in shit, if I can be kind so blunt, virtually all the time. But it, it strikes me that so many people are fixated on what they don't have, and they're focused on little things. 
And my, my question is that uh, comes back to that uh, thing around goals and objectives and missions. The moment I stopped worrying about the small things and focused mm-hmm. on achieving great things, mm-hmm. stuff that I probably cannot achieve in my lifetime, I've found that immensely liberating. And even the tiny setbacks along the way are so insignificant because of the scale of my ambition that it never feels like failure. Whereas in the past, exactly the same circumstance, because it was such a large part of my piffling, utterly inconsequential goal, that I felt the setback. Mm-hmm. What thoughts? Yeah, a lot of thoughts. So first of all, what you're saying is really interesting because people that are high achievers, we often are not motivated by small goals. If somebody gives me a small goal, I'm bored. Not that I don't see that there are steps to the big goal, right? I do see that there are steps, but if it's not a big goal, it's not worth it. I mean, that's just the truth. It's not worth it. Now, you also said something about failure. And it's interesting because I don't think about failure. I don't, I don't think about it. I think about what can I learn? And I think about how can I get more, like how can I get more benefit than what other people would call failure cost me? So whether it cost me money, and I've had lessons that have cost me money, whether I've had setbacks in different ways, I always say, okay, how can I earn more from this than it cost me? And that's been, it's been huge. And this idea of like the magic wand, I tease all the time. So it's fun to you say it. I point to my desk, a uh, table behind next to my couch. And I say, my magic wand is broken. <laughs> my magic wand is broken. I wish I could help you. My magic wand is broken. On the other hand, we both, and I know it because I know you and I know what you do, we do magic, but we do magic not that is the kind with the magic wand. We do the magic by helping the person who really wants to super achieve, who really wants to make a big difference, whether it's money, whether it's you know water for Africa, whatever it is, but the person who has something that they want that's big. I mean, for me, it's all about being, living most fully, richly, powerfully, creating, making a difference and helping other people to do that. Whatever it is, we work with that in a way that really is magical. But the magic is inside people. The magic isn't in the magic wand. It's inside people. And what you described as them not wanting to do the work, the work is scary. We feed, we fight, we flight, we you know, all kinds of things. We freeze from fear. Probably. We don't know how to do the work, right? We, we, or we collapse if it goes on for too long. If we're in fear too long, we just collapse. So if we can help people to reframe the way they experience work, not just up in their head, but in their head, in their body, and in their actions, what do we do when we feel that so that they can experience differently? Then it becomes exhilarating because high achievers that I've worked with and that I'm interviewing and that I just know, we don't feel that way about work. Okay, there's other people I can't wait to retire. And we're like, what am I going to do next? And if I ask them about retirement, the retirement is another project. It's not like I'm going to retire and stop and not have to work anymore. It's just as much, maybe it's a little different, but it is about a reframing of the personal work. It becomes exhilarating instead of depleting. Really very interesting. I've Throughout my career, I've always enjoyed what I've done. But as I've got older, and I hope a little bit wiser, I've enjoyed it more and more and more, to the point where I can't believe how depressingly fast time goes. 
every day I think, how the hell did the uh, day end? At the end of the week, how is it the weekend? And, you know, the year goes by in the blink of an eye because it is that compelling. It's so much fun. And what what I feel blessed uh, to have discovered is that if the work that you do and the way you live your life gives you that level of satisfaction, you have no room to be bored. You have no room to be unhappy. There will be setbacks, but that's all they are. And when you consider how short your time on the planet is, you know, I'm 53 now, I'm going on 80. And um, the, the thing that really, I, I, if there is an afterlife, I think the one thing you should absolutely be punished for is wasting the blink that you have that is your lifetime. That's kind of a showstopper, right? That's pretty, I mean, it really is. It's pretty profound. And so many people have talked about different things. Like if I lived this year, like it was my last year, what would be different? If I lived this day, you know, there was somebody who talked about waking up every morning, I forget who it was, and saying, what would I do today if it was my last day? And sometimes I ask that question. I kind of say, okay, am I spending my time that's allotted to me in the way that really is what I'm here to do? And that's not just somebody else has decided it, but I've decided it. But I want to add something to this because I said something and I don't want it to be misunderstood. I talked about our relationship to work. One of the things about high achievers is that we tend to do things from drive because we often are driven. And one of the things that's really important to live like longer literally to live longer, to live healthier, is to learn to regulate our nervous system so that we use our drive, but we don't use it in a way that we use it up. And that's really tricky, you know, guilty. It's like really tricky for a lot of us. So that we use our drive, but not in a way that uses us up, Ah. right? Not in a way that uses us up. And that's really tricky because we're taught, even just things like, okay, so I want to show you something fun. And our listeners, so we're taught to do things by willpower. And I was like, you know, I was just supremo, willpower, right? Willpower. Well, if you think of the word willpower, what happens in your body, like my fists, I didn't do this on purpose. My fists went like this, right? My chest kind of went in. I'm got like gearing up, but I'm not breathing fully. I'm not relaxed. I'm not letting energy flow through me. I'm not in a state that's going to enhance productivity or longevity. So one of the things that's really important is to move from willpower to willingness to learn how to use our drive. Because a lot of high achievers are in this state of high arousal, and then they kind of drop. So it's really to learn about recharging. So we rewire, we release, we recharge all of the things that we need to do. And the one I don't like is resilience. That's another RE word that people talk about. And I don't, I'd love to hear what you think about this, but I want to share this. Um, resilience is something that for most people is going back to where they were. And when they have a setback, they think, okay, I want to go back. And what I want people to do is learn to go forward and to create the you that they need to be to do what they want in a way that enables them to live as long, as healthy, as productive, as happy, in connected, satisfying relationships as they can. There's a really fascinating concept in both Chinese and Sufi philosophy. In Chinese philosophy, I think it's in Taoism, you start perfect 
And then you start building these walls, this armor, and the real drive towards enlightenment is being able to get back to that level of self-awareness uh, and innocence. In Sufism, there is an instrument called the ney, which is uh, a flute made from a bulrush uh, reed. And it's got the most melancholy sound to it. The uh, Sufis believe that uh, it sounds like that because it's longing to get back to the, uh, the pond and be part of its origin. And I think far, far too often we stray away from who we are to try and become something we're not. So, so that's really interesting because I have spent, you talk about self-reflection, many, 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 many hours thinking about that, right? So because I'm helping people become who they need to be to create what they want. And it really is that evolutionary self. So it's not that they become something different. It become they become more of shattering their the limits that really they've placed on themselves. Maybe it's through bad attachment or trauma or whatever it is, but it's limitations that most often are self-imposed, right? Uh, people say, you know, fear, false limitation appearing. Well, they say that fear is false evidence appearing real. I say flaw, false limitation appearing real. So I think what you're saying is really an important distinction because. We want to express more of who we're capable of being. We want to, there's a book title, I love it. And it's called All Sickness is Homesickness. And it speaks to what you're saying. It's that wanting to get home, but it's going, I think, with more wisdom. So that baby is often innocent, not always because prenatal experiences uh, really do impact. And I've seen babies that are born with fear and all kinds of things that we don't think is possible. I've seen babies or I've felt babies, watched babies agitated in the womb. Um, and we do talk about DNA. But I think that getting that innocence, getting rid of that stuff that's been put on us, and then adding wisdom to it, clarity and wisdom is really huge. So I think it's a great distinction. We become more of who we need to be, but it's an evolution of who we really are and our own potential. It's not like I'm ever going to be you. You're ever going to be me. That's not our goal anyway. But we're going to be more of the us that can create what we want. <laughs> if there were more than one of me, the earth would tilt. So, okay. You talk about something which is really interesting, this, um, uh, resist, the resistance paradox. Talk to us about that. Okay. So resistance, I just had somebody say to me uh, a couple of things. She said, she said, Dr. K, she said, you're not like other therapists. She said, you're really about transformation. And I'm like, yeah. I said, but everybody says that. She says, no, but you really are. And then she said, you're not trying to change me, which speaks to what you've said. Mm -hmm. And then she said to me, and you really like my resistance. And I was like, I never kind of thought about it like that. But in a way, there's truth to it. Because even though it sounded funny when she said it, you like my resistance. And I'm like, I like your resistance. Yeah, I like the resistance. Why? Because there's gold in the resistance. And most people teach us to push through it, to slam through it, to push it down, to ignore it, like it's a bad thing. But no, so we're wired up, right? We're wired up, especially high achievers, entrepreneurs, people that are here to make a big difference, to create something big. But we're still humans. That means they're wired for safety. Okay, so we've got this dance. Now, even though a lot of people that are high achievers having much higher tolerance for risk, 
they're still human and they've still had experiences and attachment issues and trauma issues and a nervous system that wires them up in all kinds of ways. So there's this constant push-pull for creating, taking risks, being big and being safe, right? Doing what we've done before that's worked to a point. It worked. You're asking me to give it up. It's like, it worked for me to get me here. And the more successful you are, the more successful you feel you have to lose, right? Someone who hasn't been successful is like, I'll try anything. Someone who's successful doesn't say I'll try anything because it's like, oh, wait a second. This has worked so far. Now I want more, but it's scary. So we're in that dance. So to me, when we learn, in my experience, when we learn to work with our resistance and also when we learn to work with others' resistance. So if you're a coach or consultant, your client, if you're a salesperson, a prospect, if you're an entrepreneur, everybody in your business, your culture, your employees, your vendors. I mean, for me, it's even the checker, the the supermarket, because I like talking to people every place. It's like learning all of our interactions so that we move forward and lessen resistance as opposed to create more resistance in ourselves or in others. So this is where the gold is. This is like the golden golden gateway, the bridge to having everything that we can create in our lives. One of the most important watershed moments in my life was when I was trained by Howard Goldstein in a, a concept called negative reverse selling. And it can be overused very badly and clumsily, but it applies the Newton's third law of motion, which is for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And what I learned in those three very special hours was that your job is to fall away and have others fall towards you. And the minute you try and push, the minute you try and um, fight their resistance, they will just lock their heels into the ground and they'll resist. And the easiest way to overcome resistance is to follow Bruce Lee's philosophy, which is to act as water, not rock. And Exactly. The mistake I think we make, particularly where we have high levels of attachment, where we are worried about extrinsic approval, where we are trying to achieve things that are not really important to us, uh, but we think that they should be, is that we start pushing. And it's so important to remember that you need to nurture. You need to nurture yourself. We should on ourselves way too much. And we spend far too much time judging and blaming and making excuses and justifying both our own actions and those of others. And the removal of judgment and uh, prejudice, pre-judgment, is the root of uh, a judgment is the root of prejudice. The positive acceptance of self, the positive acceptance of others, takes maturity normally because most cultures create a them versus other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, them- it's so it's huge what you're saying, and of course Bruce Lee can say it easily: be like water, not like rock. But that's a journey. It's not something that most of us are taught to do. It's not most. It's not the way we're wired up. So it really takes um, it takes practice 
it takes practice. I mean, even what you said, non-judgment, which to me is huge. It's like people say 100% responsibility, but no judgment. Exactly. 100% responsibility and discernment. I'm not saying like everything is cool, but I always ask people to take a question, right? And I call it a litmus test question. I've got a few questions and things that I ask people to do, but I would love everybody listening today to just take this on. I do this throughout the day and it's not onerous. It just becomes what you talked about habits, right? So when I think about thoughts, feelings, or actions, because we do nurture our thoughts, right? Like, what am I going to focus on? And crazy, we're thought to focus on what we don't want instead of what we want. I mean, that's just like what, what we are. It's like kids are taught, like, don't fail. They're not taught, like, how to succeed. It's just, it's amazing in school, all the things that you're taught at home. And it's not because people are bad. It's because it's what they learned and they don't know how to do it any better. So this is huge. So I tell people to ask the question, like when they're thinking something and they want to kind of hang out with it, is that thought, is nurturing that thought going to bring me closer to who I am, who I want to be and what I want to create? If it is, cool, nurture. If it's not, and not just in the short term of getting me to a certain point, but in the long run, then shift it. Don't let go of it because you can't just let go right? You can't just let go of a thought, but you can shift and choose another one. If I have a feeling, maybe it's anger, maybe it's grief. It's like, let it move through you. Don't push it down. Don't ignore it. Get the information from it. And then maybe it's joy. Well, even joy, you can't hold on to it, right? You can't hold on to feelings, but see which ones you want to nurture. If there are actions, is this action going to bring me closer or further to who I am, who I want to be, and what I want to create? And that becomes, a, it becomes a, a roadmap for everything, whether you want to call it a blueprint, a roadmap. But I ask that question throughout the day, just automatically. When I'm making a decision, decisions become very easy because when you ask that question and you live in accordance with that. So I'm really mad and I want to like complain about somebody, right? Something happens. Somebody, and I have to think, okay, maybe... Maybe reporting them is because it's going to save other people. Maybe it's just me being kind of angry, right? Because they were just not nice and I got kind of pissed off. And then I may, I decide to do something different, right? So it's always to live by that in terms of the who you are, who you want to be. And those are related, like you said, and we talked about. And then what you want to create in this life while you're here. And you, you've touched on another really important concept that I learned when I was working with Sandler, which is the difference between your role and your identity. Roles are things that you do. The role of mother, father, brother, sister, golfer, driver, entrepreneur, lawyer, all of those are role functions. Who you are is your identity. And uh, one of the most useful skills that I learned and habits that I learned was to every now and again calibrate how I feel about my role performance and how I feel about my identity. And I, I've been really blessed because I, I've, I've learned that consistently my identity score is 10 or very close to it because I like who I've become. I'm comfortable in my own rather overstretched skin and I'm happy with the way I choose to live my life. I delight in the fact that I don't spend time in gossip. I don't spend my time worrying about how other people perceive me because I'm comfortable being me. Um, but 
in terms of my role performance, I'm often quite critical of that because God knows it does need uh, the occasional boost and kick up the ass. But it's such an important distinction and very, very few people ever get to learn that. And I think that's such a shame. It's really important. And even what you said about needing that kick in the butt, right? It's the way you do it that's important, right? Mm -hmm. It's doing it in a way that that really fosters you moving further as opposed to tightening you up. And I think that's huge. And most of us have learned, like, even this whole thing of accountability partners, okay, this whole idea of accountability partners gets me a little crazy because we then are putting the responsibility on somebody else for what's really our responsibility. So it really is like, okay, the only one I want to be responsible to is me. Yeah, I have responsibility in my family. I have responsibility in the larger universe. But really, do I want an accountability partner? If I wanted an accountability partner, I'd get a job. And the reason that accountability partners appear to work is because most of us want to be connected. And so the most successful people have collaboration partners co-creation partners. I want somebody that is cheering me on and holding me the space for me to do all I can do and even more, but I don't want to have to report. And so when it looks like it's working, it's really because that person is right there with us. We're connected. We're not alone. And they're seeing us in a way. And what we talked about holding the space for us to be all that we can be, to be that best identity and the best role. And so people mess it up mix it up, mess it up when they talk about accountability and they love it. Why do they love it? They love it because they like being connected and it's not really about reporting to somebody. I would say if an entrepreneur really needs an accountability partner to to be accountable to, go get a job. But if they're looking for a collaboration or co-creation partner, somebody to be there enjoying the journey with them, then that's awesome. And let's figure out the way that works best for each person and each partnership. Well, this then speaks to something really important in business, which is the way uh, managers build and manage their team, leaders lead and lead their team. Because I think in so many organizations, what I've seen happen is this uh, fixation on metrics, KPIs, OKRs, MBOs, and all this kind of stuff. And it seems that thing that made humanity the dominant species on the planet was collaboration. Most organizations, I I interviewed a fascinating lady, Suzanne Jacobs, about six months ago, uh, actually around Christmas. She was part of my advent calendar series. And she was a partner at KPMG. And she woke up one day and realized that she knew more about her laptop than she did about her people. And uh, we had a really fascinating conversation that how since the Industrial Revolution, people have been relegated to a function uh, within a great machine. And that's not collaboration. Being the person who rolls out the wire and then sharpens the end and then uh, taps out the head of the pin and then glues it on. And we've forgotten how important it is for us to be stimulated to feed off one another's ideas and insights. And for me, the the podcast has been one of the best gifts I've ever given myself 
because it's allowed me to speak to people and bounce ideas around, synthesize them. And I think that is, that's been lost to a large extent because we tend to recruit in our own image, often only weaker. We have a tendency to homogenize. We have a tendency to look for uh, people who agree with us and people who disagree with us. And I think as a species, certainly in the Western world, I can only speak for my little um, you know, spot on it. But I I've, don't see people achieving their fullest potential because they're so constrained by the roles that they have, by the uh, hierarchy, by accountability, by these measurements, instead of really thinking, what's the outcome that we're collectively trying to achieve? When you get a group of people together who are focused on that same outcome, that's just a, a, a thrill ride. Exactly. And it doesn't, you know, I use the word collaboration. It doesn't mean you're working on the project together, but it means you're collaborating, just like you're connected, you're creating. So they don't have to be like a JV or, you know, a joint venture or, or something where it's actually a project together. But we thrive as humans by connections, connection. And without that, it's one of the reasons that this pandemic was so painful. I mean, yes, there have been economic pains, there have been all kinds of pains, but taking human beings and locking them up making it where one of the things I noticed when I'd go into the supermarket was where I'm somebody who literally, I talk to people. I try and make the cashier's day better. I try and like have interactions with people in the store. Maybe this sounds kind of crazy, right? But I do. For me, like I don't love shopping or food shopping. I like shopping. But one of the things that makes it fun for me is talking to people, meeting people. And one of the things that happened during the pandemic is if you talk to somebody, they backed up. They literally, it's like you didn't even have to move into their space. But as soon as they could sense it, people were scared and they would back up and they were shut down. And I would make a point of saying to the checkers, like, how is this going for you? You know, is this, you know, what's this like? And they would talk about how difficult it was. And they, you know, like wearing a mask all day, not just, just it was harder to breathe. Some of them felt dizzy. They felt more disconnected from other people. So we're not wired for that. And I think it's one of the reasons, yeah, we had suicides because people were scared economically, but we also had suicides because we were triggered and because we were disconnected. And as a species, we need connection and people don't honor it in the way and give it importance. And in fact, people, you know, sometimes people are codependent in quotes, but sometimes people are naming people codependent if what they really are is people who recognize the need for connection to thrive. Now, I'm obviously a freak because I <laughs> love being um, my, uh, in my little cave in my conservatory, not meeting people. But I've never had such an active social connection with the rest of humanity. I'm doing 12 to 16 calls a day on, the phone, uh, on Zoom. And it's been blissful. So you're not disconnected. I mean, you may not be like in the physical space, but, you know, I think it's, we, we all know that's one of the reasons that Zoom was that lifeline for so many people. Oh, and for great. so many people, it was tough. I mean, I have teenagers that I work with who've had a really hard time being away from their friends and even being on Zoom, which, you know, again, many of us, we just met recently and, you know, just our lives have been enriched through people that Absolutely. were much more open. <laughs> what were you going to say, Marcus? You get me laughing here. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, it definitely, my life's definitely been mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, th- this week alone, I've spoken to seven or eight of the most interesting people I'm ever likely to meet in my life. Now, in fairness, I've got um, a huge collection of really interesting people that I've met through the podcast and through my work. But the reality is that it's that question, who, who, who? Uh, yeah, who knows? Uh, who knows the people who know? Who's done this stuff before? Why, why do I have to reinvent the wheel? And it's through that collaboration, it's through that connection, it's through that social engagement that you can get the answers to virtually every problem that you can ever face. And one of the things just talking to you and knowing you just for a little bit is the openness you have. It's not just like, okay, I'm here and I'm connecting from this place, but you really embrace connection and openness and new ideas and synthesis. So, I mean, that's that not everybody does that. I just want to say that. (laughs) I've gotten into trouble for most of my working life uh, because I've met Kurt Friedel um, and uh, he did my adaptiveness versus um, innovation score. Um, and I'm way off the scale. So, yeah. Dr. K, this has been just brilliant. Loved every moment of this conversation. We've come to the top of the hour. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Fern, age 23, who knew everything was invincible and immortal. What's the one choice bit of advice you'd have whispered in her ear that she would have said, sod off, I'm not paying any attention? Okay, so that's really fun because on the one hand, you said like the know-it-all, right? And the confidence, and it's true, there are some really fun stories about me at that age, crazy things that I did. But there was a deeper place of trust that was not really developed. So it looked like I was super confident. I did crazy wild things that advanced me professionally and were a heck of a lot of fun. But there was this other place that there were certain things I didn't trust myself enough. So one of the things I would say to me at 23 and to most 23-year-olds is learn to know when your intuition is a clear signal, when it's getting mucked up, and then really trust yourself more, follow it more, and stay the course. Now, I was definitely one of those people... Like, I wouldn't be surprised if you, if somebody told me I couldn't do something, I just kind of went out and I was like, oh yeah, watch me, right? Always been like that. (laughs) But even though I did that, there was still this place. There was still this place in me. And so it would really be get to understand when to follow it and when maybe to be a little more open to other people and then follow it and really trust yourself and stay your course. I think one of the really interesting skills that you, you learn along the way hopefully, is to learn to calibrate whether to trust your gut or not. And if you do this consciously and you pay attention to what your gut feel is before you make a decision, then you make the decision and then you calibrate again how it feels after. And then you calibrate once you've got the outcome. Then you become more aware of when your gut is giving you good uh, direction or it's encouraging you to stay away from something that's likely to work out poorly. So I want to say two things before we wrap up. One of them is that things that you say as if everybody knows them are not things everybody knows. No, no, no. Okay. So this (laughs) one is really important because most people here follow your gut, always follow your gut. No, don't always follow your gut. Learn about yourself so you can tell your gut always gives you information. 
yeah. learn when it's information you should act on or when it's information you should take in. And I guess act on it, but in a different way. So don't just do it. You have a feeling. Don't just act. Because I always say to you know people also, it's a feeling. Okay, it's a feeling. So it's really trusted, but learn when it's getting mucked up by your, you know, your own history, right? Your own trances, your beliefs, your, your other stuff or those around you. So really, really key what you just said, really, really key. And then I think it's really important. And I'm doing a program about this for people is for people to learn how to bring out not only the best in themselves, work with their resistance, decode the hidden conversations, really work with the hidden drivers, some of which we've talked about today. So they can really maximize everything they want, but not only in themselves, but help do it in others. Because we're all 100% responsibility for bringing out the best on ourselves and bringing out the best as much as we can in people we interact with. So I always say, people say to me, you know, are you responsible for your client's outcome? Yes and no. I'm responsible for doing my 100% to set it up. So they can do the best, but then I can't be responsible for their hundred percent, their hundred percent, no matter how much I want to be. So really excited that one of the things that I'm doing is a program for coaches, consultants, mentors, and really anybody that works with people so they can learn how to not have their stuff work against them, but to work for them and really move those drivers so that they can bring out peak performance in themselves and whether they're trying to sell somebody, whether they're trying to help them with their health, whatever they're trying to do, a health professional, maximize that so that everybody is living the richest, fullest, most powerful, productive, meaningful life that we can for as long as we can. Excellent. And if not, make a good looking corpse. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Marcus, you just kind of top the cake for me all the time. <laughs> So what would you recommend people read, watch, listen to that you feel will help them make strides towards greater responsibility of their 100% um, that will help them deal with that resistance paradox? Okay, so a couple of things. One is you mentioned Steve Sim's book. That is one of my favorite books that I recommend to people. The the Blue Fishing, The Art of Making Things Happen. There's another book that sounds woo, but there's some wonderful things in it that aren't so much about our own resistance, but really are about working with others in really difficult situations. And that is a book called Creating Miracles. And then come sign up on my list because, you know, I do podcasts, I do webinars. I'm going to be starting my own podcast. There's so many ways either to work with me formally to do that or to get information that I share because nobody else is talking about resistance in this way. So if you want to work on your own resistance and others, come find out where I am. Come join the conversation. How can people get hold of you? My website, the con- you can join the list there, right? Join us on the list so you'll get really everything that's going on, but also email me. So if you go to drkazlo.com, it's D-R-K-A-Z-L-O-W.com. Join us, join the list. You'll get notification and message me. There's a contact form. Like ask questions from what we talked about. Share what you think. If this is something that you want to look at for yourself, you know, let's set up a time and let's meet. As you said, I'm a connector and I'm really here to help people shatter those false limitations that appear real. And there are very few real limitations in my book. Excellent. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to fly through flapping my arms, but most other things are possible. Excellent. Dr. K, thank you. 
Thank you so much. This has been really, really fun. I appreciate you inviting me. Thank you. My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if there's someone out there who's holding themselves back or who you can see potential in, but they really aren't allowing themselves the space, then please tag them, share it with them, and put them in touch with Dr. K. And in the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, my email is marcus at laughs-last.com. If you want to be a guest or know someone who would be a great guest, then please get in touch and feel free to offer a genuine review on Apple or Google Podcasts. So one star or five star, anything in between, just put your thoughts down and please, if you can share the podcast with others, I'd be grateful. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.